you Albion calling? You Albion calling? Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Program. Coming up next is Slumbertime Stories. But first, here is some more correspondence from a listener. And hopefully this time it's actually relevant to the show in some way. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Bubonic, Well, that's not a particularly promising start, Mabel. What's that? What's that? It's the only correspondence we've had. Oh, dear. Well, beggars can't be choosers, I suppose, so here goes nothing. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Bubonic, We have always been fond of your range of tinned meat products, and my husband has always been particularly keen on your jerky. However... I could not contain my anger when Mrs. Brass Cobblers confided in me that you are intending to introduce a new line of gorgonzola and hickory-stuffed faggots. There seemed no other option but to immediately call a house vote, and the result of this division was three to one against. Which in itself is odd, since our household consists of only me and my husband. I can only presume that he voted both ways, so as not to upset me, not knowing my preference. The other vote is still a mystery, but it seems most likely it is our dog Ethelred the Unready, the Red Setter. Ethie gets to eat the majority of our leftovers, and Hickory tends to make him angsty. Although this vote is clearly advisory, we would nevertheless urge you to give up on this misplaced culinary suicide and consider other flavours, perhaps something with chives. We await your soonest reply. Yours faithfully, Mrs. Twomble. Well, thank you for your missive, Mrs. Twomble. It certainly put me off my dinner and probably most of our listeners too. Um, anyway, moving swiftly on. Now on the light programme, it's Slumbertime Stories. And this week, we bring you part two of Time Shock, read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. In last week's episode... Our intrepid time explorers gazed into the past. What strange visions await them now as they attempt to view the future? Part two of Time Shock by Darren Kelly. Once all present had viewed their fill of the past and filled their bellies with sufficient cold meat and cheese, glasses were raised in a toast to what was unanimously declared to be the invention of the age. Once this formality was complete, Lushthorpe cleared his throat and rose to speak. In solemn tones that caused all the guests to pay full attention, he began, As you have all borne witness, I have created here by my own devising, a machine capable of viewing varied times through history. Nods of agreement all around were interrupted as the First Lord took a loud draught of wine from his fluted glass, which did not go down so well with the others. We, we have viewed with alacrity a plethora of visages of the recent and indeed somewhat less recent past. These scenes may be viewed with impunity and untroubled countenance since they are gone and done with, and no person may be affected by what we witness except, naturally, to increase their understanding of our ancestors and the world within which they dwelt. 
He paused dramatically for effect. The same cannot be said of the future. As the first of our species to be able to witness events not only from the past, but from the time yet to come, it is incumbent on us not to view anything that might prove compromising to those present amongst us. Indeed, it is my solemn recommendation that rather than viewing the immediate future, we should look instead to view events long after we have shuffled off this mortal coil. The PM in particular seemed deep in thought at this suggestion, and he was first to offer an additional opinion. I am inclined to agree with you. It would be a tragedy of great proportion for any of us to witness, however fleetingly, some harrowing event in one of our lives, or indeed something that enabled us to take advantage over others with the knowledge of what is yet to come. It was the PM's turn to pause for effect. I would concur that perhaps a visage of the world two or three hundred years hence should satisfy our desire for knowledge without compromising anyone's position in the world. There were nods around the table at this proposal, which Lushthorpe took to denote tacit approval. Very well. It is my earnest belief that following my previous experiments and with the experience of tonight's practical demonstration under my belt, I am now able to manipulate the timescape with exceptional accuracy to any date in the past or future that is within its range. He stood, replaced his goggles, and indicated that the others should do likewise. Reattend the machine now, and I will show you a vision 200 years, give or take, in the future of our very lives. No soul living nor dead has witnessed such a thing before us. And with this dramatic pronouncement ringing in their ears, they all rose and made their way back to their positions around the device. No talk was necessary now, as all knew the drill. Philby scribbled feverishly in his pad, and the special branch man looked on trepidatiously as the other four took their seats. Lushthorpe reset his controls, and made sure they knew not to attend the viewfinders until he was confident they were viewing sufficiently distance into the future. Once again the floor vibrated. Wires hummed and steam vented in a manner that seemed even more portentous were such a thing possible in a machine. We are approaching the time. Prepare yourselves for a meeting with destiny, uttered Lushthorpe, a slight nervous croak in his voice clearly audible. The vibrations in the floor were now exceeding anything experienced previously, and without warning, a strong smell of ammonia filled the room. Do not be alarmed, shouted Griselda in an extremely alarming manner. The lights dimmed again, and an eerie glow filled the room as the valves in the machine glowed ominously. Lushthorpe dared not take his eyes from the controls, but as the moment approached, he raised an arm with one finger pointing to the group. Nearly? All looked nervously around them, adjusting goggles once more and making sure they were all well seated so as to not embarrass themselves with a slip when the future was revealed. Each attendee's mind 
began to fill with the possibilities. Just what would the future hold for this fragile planet of theirs? It is time. Behold, the very world we inhabit, two hundred years hence. The four witnesses bent quickly to their viewfinders and let their eyes adjust to the vision before them. Well, that's Rom, remarked the first lord after a short time had passed. The, the, what, 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 what vision attends you? gibbered Lushthorpe feverishly. Well, not a lot, really. I can just see the wall. What about the rest of you? Murmurs to the affirmative indicated they were all seeing the same thing. A glowing, flickering, but very clearly visible view of the very same wall as was before them now. Lushthorpe moved to the viewfinders and, uh, rather uncouthly, pushed the PM to one side so he could take a look. Well, I'll be. You're quite right. Without even removing his goggles, Lushthorpe slid a slide rule from his pocket and made some on-the-hoof calculations that he cross-checked against the positions and readouts of the various levers and dials. It all seems correct. I don't really understand. What has befallen this house that nothing has happened to it in two centuries? Are you sure the blinking thing is working? Why would the room be abandoned and not attended for so long? inquired the PM, somewhat annoyed that he had been pushed aside so casually. Um, fear not. I will go forward in time to the limit of the machine. Another hundred years should be possible. Attend your positions. The PM and all concerned leaned in once more as a similar routine of rumblings took place. Behold, the future, three hundred years distant. Lushthorpe's announcement was well intoned, but regrettably the vision in the viewfinders remained stubbornly and frustratingly the same. A blank, unaltered wall. Much discussion now broke out amongst the ensemble as Philby, Special Branch, Griselda and Lushthorpe all took turns at the viewers, but no discernible change in the vista could be detected. Amidst much checking and rechecking of the still-rumbling machine, it was suggested that perhaps the building was abandoned or preserved for some reason. Maybe connected with the historic events of this very soiree. Only the PM's voice seemed to have a concern that more ominous events might have caused the abandonment. And in the end, it was he who suggested, nay, demanded, further manipulation of the machine to make sure. It concerns me greatly that we might be witnessing an abandonment of the building for several hundred years hence. Is it possible that by playing with the unseemly forces of nature tonight, we have unleashed some malevolent force on the world? This suggestion did not go down well. Poppycock, offered Lushthorpe, with hopes of dashing all doubt. But others were also starting to fret. One more attempt to view the furthest date in the future possible by the device was attempted. By Lushthorpe's increasingly feverish calculations, they were looking nearly 500 years into the future. The vision was faint, but unsettling all the same. The wall had obviously decayed somewhat in the intervening period, 
but it appeared as if no human hand had touched it in all that time. It was hard to say for certain, but someone claimed to have seen a rat, and also plants could be seen growing in a crack to the left of the image. In the end, it was Ellen's younger and sharper eyesight that spotted a possible clue in the very bottom right-hand corner of the dim, flickering image. It looks like a small pile of bones, she exclaimed, causing all to hurriedly return to look, and there was a slight jostle as it soon became clear that eight into four was not going to go. Lushthorpe, the PM, the First Lord, and obviously Ellen, the initial finder, ended up in pole positions. By Jove, she's belly right, proffered the First Lord. Bones it is. How did we not notice before? Similar views were offered by all, and a hurried, and with hindsight, somewhat hasty decision was made to reverse the machine and try to identify the poor unfortunate creature that had been the original bone donor, uh, so to speak. Oh my, I do hope it's not a person, squeaked Philby. All seconded his views, and a very distinct chill descended on the room, despite the manic rumblings of the timescope contraption all around them. Back they went in time, year followed year, until there could be no debate on the unfortunate object. It was hard to see through the combination of goggles and flickering viewfinder, but clearly visible in the bottom of the picture was the ghostly white foot of a human skeleton. By this point, the First Lord and Eliza had lost their stomach for viewing the grisly scene and retired, pale-faced, to down more wine. Special Branch and Philby were suddenly in their element, and along with the PM and Ellen, resolved that a decision was needed. Special Branch, whose name turned out to be Quentin, took charge of the situation, as Lushthorpe was observed to be shaking slightly, and the PM seemed utterly lost for words. Now then, it seems that our very worst fears have been realised. He paced backwards and forwards. If he had had a pipe to hand, no doubt he would have sucked on it thoughtfully. Exactly as Lushthorpe cautioned us, we are all now witness to an unfortunate event. The facts as I see them are as follows. At some point in the future, through accident, design, or foul malevolent force of nature, a poor soul has lost his life in this very room. At this statement, Griselda gave an alarming wail and left the room noisily to resume a frantic search for her son. I knew it muttered the PM, finally rediscovering his vocabulary. By your unnatural workings, you have unleashed some violent force upon the earth. He was beginning to shake now. This should never have taken place. We should never have come here. We have gone against God, and now we will all pay. Uh, easy now, interrupted Ellen, trying to keep her voice level although her anxiety was growing too. We don't know that for sure. We don't indeed. It was Quentin who stepped in now. But by the power invested in me, I demand that we reverse the machine still further and view what took place. 
Even if we view something unnatural? Blurted the PM. Even so. Grimly, amidst some sobbing, the decision was made to do as had been suggested. For better or worse, Lushthorpe had no choice but to comply. In silence, the four, by now pale-faced witnesses, Ellen, Quentin, Philby, and the PM, returned to their duty. The First Lord and his wife continued to drink, but made no other noises as the machine was reversed and time was rolled back. No one noticed the noise and vibrations as they were each fixed on their task. Slowly the years peeled back again, and the grisly bones grew flesh. First decayed and putrid, held by strips of material, then more formed and complete. Ellen put a hand to her mouth as a monstrous rat was clearly seen in the peculiar act of replacing a shoe onto the foot. Philby lurched alarmingly on his stool and then hurried to a corner and was sick. Everyone began to feel nauseous as the vile smell joined the others in the room. Lushthorpe was seemingly unmoved, rolling his machine backwards in time, inexorably towards the present. The foot, now dressed and shod, was clear for all to see. Lying prone on the floor of the room, a man's foot, or perhaps, since there was nothing to reference the size against, Horror of horrors, a boy's. Back and back the machine took them until, without warning, the leg simply disappeared. Good God, muttered Quentin, will I never? At this comment the First Lord returned to the vacated viewer and the unrelenting near future image of the wall only a few feet away from them, nothing else now being visible. Uh, we are almost back at the present, whispered Lushthorpe, unsure whether anyone was listening to him anymore. It was at this point, with the Prime Minister of the land and the First Lord of the Admiralty as witnesses, alongside a much-respected member of the senior constabulary and a renowned explorer, that the most horrific, blood-curdling sight that you might ever imagine from now until your dying day appeared in the viewfinder of the infernal machine. Briefly, with heart-stopping suddenness, and with no prior hint it was about to happen, a ghastly face that appeared to be the devil himself appeared in the viewfinder. Blood-red eyes, gnarled horns, snarling teeth, bleeding red tears and looking directly at them. The PM fainted on the spot and collapsed to the floor. Quentin and Ellen fought to prevent themselves being sick, whilst the First Lord let out a blood-curdling scream not entirely dissimilar to a cat being strangled. Lushthorpe, who thankfully had not witnessed the awful visage, lost his footing at the shock of it all and fell into the control box, damaging it and plunging the room briefly into darkness as the machine ground to a halt and the viewfinders faded to black. With practice speed, 
the butlers appeared with hurricane lamps and evacuated the ensemble out of the dreaded room. The PM was roused and he immediately ordered the evacuation of the city lest the evil apparition kill more people. With growing anxiety and desperation, Lush Thorpe and his wife searched further for their beloved Tom. But with no trace found, they resigned themselves that the evil force had made him the first victim. As the sirens wailed across the city, and with aching hearts, they left with the others and joined the stream of bewildered refugees away from the epicentre of doom. None of them would ever return to this cursed house. After nearly half an hour of silence and the creaking and mostly darkened house, the boy, Tom, decided to crawl out of his wonderful new hiding place. Without a word, lest he fail to successfully sneak up on any unsuspecting adults, he made his way out from under the stairs and across the doors of the medium-sized old ballroom where his mother and father abandoned him daily to work. He leant against the door, straining his ears to hear if there was anyone within. He heard nothing, so tentatively tried the door and then opened it to find the room empty apart from a hastily abandoned supper and the still creaking and steaming remains of the now terminally damaged timescope. Walking carefully across the room towards the assimilator, he reached into his waistband and pulled out the Halloween mask he had intended to don to scare his parents. And for want of something more interesting to do, he put it on anyway. It had a realistic, devilish appearance that had been designed and lovingly crafted in solitary moments over the last couple of weeks. Mask in place, he trod carefully in his slightly too big school shoes across the floor to what appeared to be a four-lensed camera and peered into it, wondering what its use might be. It held little interest for him and appeared to do nothing at all. So, masks still affixed, he wandered off into the house to see where everyone had gone. Well now, dear listeners, I do hope you aren't too disturbed by the denouement of our tale. Tune into the Light Programme next week for another episode of Slumber Time Stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Keller. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production of Albion Radiophonic Corporation.
Got it. 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 Got it.